Welcome back to Touching Base, the new weekly podcast series from Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News, or GEN. I'm back. I'm Phelan, Senior Editor of GEN Biotechnology, GEN's sister peer review journal publishing original research and perspectives across the biotech field. Joining me this week is Uduak Thomas, Jonathan Grinstein, and Alex Filipidis to discuss this week's latest stories in biotech. This week in part two of this episode, we feature Jonathan's interview with the co-founders from Nautilus Biotechnology, CEO Sujal Patel, and Chief Scientist Parag Malik on their efforts reinventing proteomics. But first, we're going to bring you this week's latest biotech news, starting with genomics. Genomics technology company Simplify Genomics has launched a new platform. Uduak, you covered this. Tell us about this announcement. Absolutely. So Simplify Genomics is a new company, but their technology is maybe not so new. This is a spin-out from Human Longevity, who we all know uh, is a company that was founded by uh, Craig Venter. Um, and basically what Simplify Genomics was launched to do was to commercialize existing variant interpretation technology that was developed at HLI. So the new platform is called Smart Genome. Um, that's the uh, platform that uh, Simplify is commercializing. It's got a couple of features. Um, there is software, obviously, for analyzing sequence data, interpreting it, and generating clinical reports um, based on the information found um, in, in the genomes that are analyzed. So pathogenic, likely pathogenic variants and uh, the diseases and disorders that they are associated with. You also get pharmacogenomic findings um, in these reports that are generated um, from the platform. Other components of Smart Genome include a search engine, and that's basically for searching data, querying it, um, and annotating sequence data as well. And the system also features a database um, that contains thousands of de-identified whole genomes curated and annotated um, by scientists at HLI. So basically, this is a service that is being marketed to clinicians so they can order um, the clinical genomic reports for their patients. Um, so this is not a direct to patients offering. It goes to it has to go through clinicians. Um, sequence data can be generated for those that want to. Um, Simplified Genomics has partners that offer that. Um, or if they already have the sequence data in hand, they can simply send it to Simplified Genomics and then they will do the analysis uh, for the, the client. Um, and then output the report, which is then sent back to the physician for them to discuss with their patients. Um, the company did tell me about their pricing. Right now, what they're charging for reports is around $1,250 to $1,500 for an initial report. But keep in mind, the patients will only have to do this one time. Once their data is sequenced um, and analyzed, they get the report. That's what that initial price covers. And then basically what they'll get are updates um, to those reports as new information comes, about, comes out of about the variants that are observed in their data. So this is a company that was founded a couple of years ago, um, but they are just emerging from development mode. They announced the launch of Smart Genome last week. And so it'll be interesting to see where they go. They do have a plan to move further, offer other products and other things in addition to the clinical reports. So it'll be interesting to see where they take things. Well, always interesting to hear these announcements about these new platforms. A common question is how does Simplify Genomics intend to differentiate themselves from other companies also doing genome interpretation solutions? 
Absolutely. I think one of their the biggest competitors probably that they will have as they they come to market would be someone like a fabric genomics. Um, and, you know, fabric has been around for a while and they have partnerships with uh, players such as Oxford Nanopore and uh, DNA Nexus. Um, and fabric does focus on uh, variant interpretation. Um, when I spoke with Simplify CEO, um, he did say that he's confident that the company can stand out in a couple for a couple of reasons. Um, obviously, this technology was developed and optimized inside HLI. And in fact, uh, Simplify actually still will have a relationship with HLI. It will still be responsible for producing the genomic clinical reports for their executive healthcare business. So they've been doing this a long time. They're not new to the space. They have a lot of expertise in, in generating and analyzing and interpreting data and generating these, these clinical reports. So that's one part, one component. Um, um, that he believes will help set the company apart. Furthermore, there's also a lot of automation, um, he said, that has gone into uh, this system. Um, they've automated a lot of the, the variant calling pathogenic and li likely pathogenic variants. So they've taken a lot of the guesswork out of making those calls. And basically what he said to me is that that means that scientists only have to spend a little bit of time sort of verifying the variants at the end of the process. Um, they're not do spending a lot of time doing a lot of the calling. Um, uh, uh, further back. So that that saves time. They're able to get reports out faster. It's a lot less stressful. So that is another thing that he thinks helps helps them sort of stand out um, uh, against the, the comp competition. He also cited the company's search engine capabilities as something that's a, a key differentiator. Again, this is a system that was developed in HLI and has been used. So they do have a lot of data. Um, they have honed the search engine's capabilities quite a bit. So he thinks that something that will also help them stand out against the, the competition. But it will be interesting to see. Obviously, Fabric isn't the only player. There are others. So it'll be interesting to see exactly how these companies differentiate themselves uh, further down the road. Um, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to, to talk more about these, these kinds of companies in, in future broadcasts. Thanks, Udomak. We're going to shift from genomics to gene therapy. Jonathan, you covered new developments in a new gene therapy to treat a life-threatening heart condition. What is the story there? Yeah, really excited to see the story. It involves a company that I spoke to at JP Morgan just a few weeks ago called Rocket Pharmaceuticals, which focuses on using AAV-based uh, gene therapies as uh, treatments for rare diseases. And uh, this particular research article was a collaboration between Rocket Pharmaceuticals and researchers at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine. And what they did was that they created an AV-based gene replacement therapy, as I said, for arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is a rare but life-threatening uh, heart disease. Um, it usually develops in somewhere between the second and fourth decade of life um, with Fatal, arrhythm fatal arrhythmias, and then the heart basically starts to die off. Um, and so, and there's no cure, you know, as it stands, as is the case for many of these, you know, fatal heart diseases. Um, so in the paper, it was a preclinical uh, article in that they did their work in a mouse model of uh, ARVC, or arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Um, they created a knockout model of uh, of this uh, disease by removing the gene 
PKP2 or placophyllin 2, which is a desmosomal gene or a solid adhesion gene. And um, they then replaced this with a human version, a, a functional human version of PKP2. And um, they had astounding results in this study uh, that I think, from what I recall, that their loss of PKP2 expression caused 100% mortality within 50 days. Um, it was a Cree-based system. So upon uh, tamoxifen injection uh, and loss of the gene, uh, all mice were dead within 50, 50 days. And then um, with the AAV-based gene therapy, they saw 100% survival for uh, at least five months, which is when the study was ended um, for those that re received the gene replacement uh, therapy. So really promising uh, preclinical evidence, um, you know, with quite a long way to go before they get to the human uh, studies here. But, um, you know, Rocket Pharmaceuticals is already in clinical trials for some similar kinds of work with their AAV based gene replacement therapies or just gene therapies. So, you know, some promising uh, research going on there. Continuing with new therapies, Jonathan, you also covered nanoparticles for autoimmunity this week. What caught your attention there? Yeah, so this is something that's uh, been kind of on my radar. I mean, that, that being not necessarily the nanoparticles, but there's been a lot of work recently in autoimmune diseases, especially, and I been writing about this, but the use of cellular therapies for treatment of autoimmune diseases. So, you know, CAR-Ts, CAR-NKs, um, autologous, autologous CAR-Ts and allergenic NKs. I've spoken to certain companies using those technologies to start working in the uh, autoimmune uh, spaces. Um, you know, that those are very uh, rich, if you will, indications where there's lots of uh, potential for, for therapeutics to be developed. And um, this company I spoke to called CORE, C-O-U-R, which is short for Courage, um, which spun out of Northwestern about a little over 10 years ago-ish, I want to say. They came out with a, what may be thought of as a delayed Series A. Um, they, they announced 150 105 million dollars series a just uh the other day and that's to push their uh nanoparticle based autoimmune therapy so um what they're doing here and it's an alternative to cellular therapies which has several different potential benefits including cost and manufacturing and several other functional benefits but they created these uh, nanoparticles with, uh, after the observation that cells that were dying, uh, that were presenting, that had a potential potential to present antigens to dendritic cells in the spleen and liver, um, could reprogram the immune system to um, you know stop recognizing self. Um, and causing an autoimmune response. So basically, they noticed that these dying cells had the potential to reprogram the immune system to stop this autoimmune response, but there's just not enough of this signal going on. So basically, they recreated this signal by creating nanoparticles that could, uh, you know, present these antigens to the uh, dendritic cells, which then kind of quells the T cell response that was driving the autoimmune response and um 
so far they had quite a bit of success. They have several uh, clinical trials going on right now. I believe one is in phase two and they have one at least in phase one as well. And they also have a partnership with Takeda and they're working with across several autoimmune um, diseases. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a, a completely different kind of approach um, to this space, which just keeps getting hotter. Um, and there's, as I said, a lot of potential for therapies to step in. So uh, it will be really interesting to see how this all pairs out um, in terms of these nanoparticles battling it out with uh, car cells or cellular therapies for, for carving out a space, space in uh, autoimmune therapies. Uh, one side note is that uh, a cool thing about this technology is that they have found that the cells that they stimulate in this process do have the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. So there's potential for there to be some, you know, work done on inflammatory, inflammatory diseases in the brain. So something to keep an eye out on uh, going forward, but they, they haven't really started working on that space. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Alex, we're going to shift to you to bring us the business news of the week. Thanks, Faye. And uh, this uh, actually this past week, we saw not one, but two successful biotech IPOs, initial public office uh, offerings. They raised the combined more than a half billion dollars, 555 million uh, to be more precise. Uh, uh, this past week, those are the first two biotech IPOs of 2024, and those have given hope to market watchers and companies and others that maybe the uh, biotech IPO market is finally getting out of the doldrums, finally turning the corner after a, a couple of really down years. And the two companies involved, I'll, I'll described. The first one is CG Oncology. Uh, their shares nearly doubled the first day to uh, $37 and change. And that's where they've been trading uh, ever since. And uh, CG Oncology, it's based in Irvine, California, and they want to develop and commercialize a, a drug called uh, Credostimogene uh, for patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder, bladder cancer and who are unresponsive to the current standard of care uh, for that disease, which is Bacillus calmetguerin or BCG therapy. And um, most of the net proceeds uh, from this would be used to fund research and clinical trial uh, development and even some manufacturing activities for credostimogene, uh, which includes a pair of phase three trials, one in high-risk BCG unresponsive NMIBC patients, and uh, also a third, a second phase three trial, which is now look completing uh, enrollment, that's PIVOT006, and that's to uh, assess credostimogene as an adjuvant therapy in intermediate risk, uh, those uh, bladder cancer patients following transurethral resection of the bladder tumor. Proof of investor interest in CG Oncology was that the company was twice able to raise the number of shares it planned to issue. Originally, they were looking at 11.8 million shares, then 17 million. And in the end, they uh, sold $19 million and they raised, they were able to raise the price uh, of the shares. Originally looking at between $16 to $18 a share. And uh, in the end, they went uh, and sold it at $19 a share. The second a company that went public uh, last week was Aravent Biopharma, and uh, those shares 
didn't rise quite as fast. They only went up 11% the first day, and they've been roughly in the $20 uh, range uh, for trading. And uh, they raised $175 million in gross proceeds by selling almost 10 million shares at $18 uh, a share. They're based in Newtown Square, Pennsylvania, Aravent is, and they have a pipeline of solid tumor therapy candidates. It's led by Fermonertinib. It's an oral brain penetrant uh, epidermal growth factor receptor or EGFR mutation selective uh, inhibitor. It's being studied across a range of EGFR mutations in non-small cell lung cancer. And the furthest along of the clinical studies uh, for uh, fermonertinib is a pivotal phase three trial. Uh, it is in treatment naive or first line patients with locally advanced or metastatic EGFR uh, mutation, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, in this case with exon 20 insertion mutations to be specific. Top line data in that study is to be read in 2025. And uh, the largest uh, share of the proceeds from that IPO is going to go towards supporting uh, uh, NDA application activities as a first-line therapy uh, for patients. Uh, it's also being studied in a phase 1B trial in cohorts of NSCLC, non-small cell lung cancer uh, patients with uh, PACC mutations, uh, as well as exon 20. And... Uh, the reason the company is going ahead with this uh, drug as their candidate is because they had a favorable uh, result from a phase 1B uh, trial uh, last year. And uh, that was a trial conducted in China by Shanghai Alist Pharmaceuticals, from which Aravent has licensed rights outside of uh, China, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan uh, for this drug. And uh, also in the pipeline of Aravent is ARR002. It's a preclinical candidate, undisclosed mechanism of action, and looking at for uh, solid tumors. Now, the IPO uh, flurry in is continuing into this week. A company called Fractal Health uh, filed paperwork uh, looking to raise uh, roughly $100 million, although that amount is expected to be firmed into uh, a likely higher number. Now, uh, Fractal Health is based in Lexington, Massachusetts, and they have two uh, products. One is not a drug, but uh, you might call it a device. It's an endoscopic catheter and console called Revita. Uh, but the other uh, main product candidate they have is a, a drug, a GLP-1-based pancreatic gene therapy called Rejuva. Now, you may have heard of GLP-1s a lot in recent months because of the success that Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly have had uh, developing GLP-1 drugs for diabetes or obesity uh, indications. And Fractal Health is looking to claim uh, its place uh, in the growing obesity drug sun, uh, so to speak. And uh, with that, uh, the thought is that, well, even if it isn't as furious a pace as we'd seen uh, in the years before the pandemic, there is some sort of IPO comeback. It was even predicted in December by a team of analysts uh, at PitchBook uh, Data, uh, led by Kyle Stanford, and uh, they had a report in December at a time when some people I'd been speaking to in the field were still a little skeptical uh, about whether IPOs would uh, heat up, and uh, what 
Fitch book said, and they kind of stuck their necks out at the time, was forecasting the precise moment when the IPO market will reopen is a very nuanced task. Yet, as we approach the end of 2023, they wrote, we were observing encouraging indicators that could point to a resurgence in the upcoming year. And that's what's starting uh, to unfold. There you go, Faye. Thanks, Uduak, Jonathan, and Alex for covering this week's news. We're excited to bring you Jonathan's interview with the co-founders of Nautilus Biotechnology after this quick break. This episode of Touching Base is brought to you by Gem Biotechnology, the marquee peer-reviewed journal from the publishers of Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. Launched two years ago, Gem Biotechnology publishes exceptional research, reviews, opinion, and analysis across the biotech spectrum, from genomics and symbio to AI and drug development. The journal features an outstanding editorial team, which is led by Chief Editor Hannah El Samad, Senior VP at Altos Labs in California. Gem Biotechnology has already published exciting original research on gene editing to boost vitamin D tomatoes, CRISPR-based pest control, base editing delivery in a single AAV vector, and cost-effective 3D printing. Plus, Gem Biotechnology has featured exclusive interviews with biotech CEOs, insights from Wall Street financial analysts, and news features from Gem reporters covering the state of aging research, AI and protein design, and advances in organon chips. Gem Biotechnology is the new choice for novel and groundbreaking advances in the biotech field. Learn more at www.gembiotechjournal.com. Welcome back to Touching Base, the new podcast series from Gen. In this segment, we bring you Jonathan's interview with the co-founders from Nautilus Biotechnology, CEO Sujal Patel, and Chief Scientist Parag Malik on all things proteomics. Hope you enjoy it. So, uh, so Jonathan, so you've got Parag and I. Parag and I are the two founders of Nautilus, and we've been at this now for a bit over seven years. And uh, just you know, by way of background, so I um, am from the tech world. I've been an entrepreneur for the for a very long time, for 23 years. The last company I was founder and CEO of was a company in the tech world called Isilon. And that company was a good success. It was a data storage company um, focused on storing unstructured data, digital content, at a time when the world was transitioning to text from text-based data to images and videos and machine-generated content. Um, one of the big areas where our business uh, was was thriving was in biomedical research because genomic sequencing, proteomics, high resolution microscopy, lots of applications were generating huge amounts of data. Um, that company was a, a good success. We took it public in 2006. We grew it to um, you know, a, almost a $100 million quarter, highly profitable business. We were at 20% operating margin, positive operating margin before we sold. We sold for $2.6 billion and that business is now in the hands of Dell, and it's a big business today. It's over three billion of revenue. It's highly profitable, and two of my former execs are still there two decades later. Um, Parag and I got to know each other because in 2004, 2005, Parag was running clinical proteomics at Cedar Sinai Medical Center in LA. He was also at UCLA, and Parag's entire career has been in the study of proteins, this proteomics space, and he was using mass spectrometry, which is the gold standard to analyze proteins in complex samples to generate massive amounts of data, and he needed storage. And he became a large customer of ours early, like right after the Broad Institute, which was another big customer of ours. And I got to know Parag really well. 
Some 11 or 12 years later, Prague went to Stanford to start a new lab sitting at the intersection of computing and biochemistry and the data sciences, focused on precision medicine, on accelerating drug development, finding new biomarkers. And my wife and I were so excited by Parag specifically, but his work that we've been philanthropically supporting his lab for the last 12 years straight. And so I've gotten to know Parag really well. And in 2016, Parag called me up and he said, Sujal, you know that I use mass spectrometry, which is the gold standard for proteomics, and it's really bad. You, you don't get a complete picture. It's really insensitive. It doesn't allow you to dig deeply into samples, what we call dynamic range. It's an instrument and a workflow that's incredibly hard to use. And because of that, proteomics is limited to a very small set of researchers. And the proteome is the most valuable and dynamic source of biological insight that you can have, right? Unlike the genome, which really doesn't change from the day you're born to the day you die, the proteome changes in response to disease state, what you ate for breakfast, what's going on in your body. And because of that, you know, they're really important in the world. 95% of our FDA approved targets, drug targets, target proteins, most molecular diagnostics, even with this big revolution in liquid biopsy, they still mostly target proteins. And so this is a really important problem. And what Brock described to me in 2016 was that he's thought about for years, well, how could I democratize access to the proteome like Illumina did for the genome. And he thought about ways to fix the mass spectrometer, evolving the time of flight tube in the mass spec, building better sample prep, like some other companies in proteomics are trying to do. He tried to think about new assays. And sort of in an interesting fashion, you know, I think Parag went on a road trip and cleared his mind and he came, woke up one morning with a completely new idea on how to measure the proteome with single molecule sensitivity, with a method that could deliver the whole proteome with an easy to use push button assay. And uh, something like a couple of months after he came up with this epiphany, uh, he called me up and he said, Sujal, I think, he sent me an email actually. And he's like, I think I've come up with something important. He's a pretty modest guy. So I get on the phone with him and he describes to me and I hung up and I thought to myself, boy, he's either crazy and this is not feasible, or he's gonna change the world. And so I dragged him up to Seattle, where I live, for 12 hours at a whiteboard. And by the end of it, um, you know, Prague and I joined forces and wrote him a check, and we got going. And that's that's been our story for seven years. So, you know, first was getting through feasibility and the research phase, which took a number of years, proving that we could do, build an instrument that would take any sample from any organism in and return virtually the entire proteome out. And we went public um, to about three years ago now to go and raise the capital that we would need to develop the product. We're deep in that product development right now and really are focused um, in the not too distant future launching this instrument that would be able to measure the entire proteome comprehensively from samples. So that is uh, the very high level. Parag, what did I miss on the background story? And then we'll pause, like, you ask some questions, Jonathan. Um, no, I think that, that really cover, covered it all. Um, I, I think the one of the things that was just so exciting about having the opportunity to go on this journey with Sujol is, is just, Sujol, you know, there are many, many CEOs in the world who are familiar with the financial aspects. Um, Sujil is very unique in that he understood you know, deeply and technically, you know, he was a technical co-founder of his prior company, 
Um, and that was really special to have have a technical partner as long as uh, alongside someone who really understood um, all of the business and financial and execution aspects the company really needs. Yeah, creating this sort of thing is more than just an academic research project and takes a lot of um, understanding and money and all sorts of different kinds of knowledge. So yeah, it seems like we have quite the perfect pairing, if you will, here of minds. Um, could we dive a little bit into the actual technology? Because you did mention, you know, for instance, uh, Sujal, you know, trying to be the Illumina of proteins. I mean, but from my understanding, we aren't talking about like peptide sequencing, right? You know, it, in some cases, if it's, it's more of like a microarray of proteins or, or what exactly is the platform? Yeah, it's interesting that you phrase it that way. I don't know. Have you have you uh, talked to the quantum SI folks recently? I haven't in a little bit. I spoke to them yeah. when they launched, but I I should yeah. sort yeah. Yeah, so that's that is wording that they would use. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and um, so I will I'll set you straight on this. So one of the things that Brog explored in depth seven years ago was should we sequence peptides. And sequencing peptides is really complicated. It's not fast, meaning you can't analyze deeply into a sample using that kind of approach. And it's highly insensitive. So the, one of the big things that hurts sensitivity in the mass spectrometer is you have to take your protein molecule and chop it into these little peptides and then read the peptides. And Prague recognized early on that even if you felt like peptide sequencing was a good approach and you wanted to deal with that sensitivity loss, that he realized that getting every amino acid accurately is is a is almost a fool's errand. It's extremely <laughs> difficult. Quantum SI is a small fraction of them, and they're certainly not accurate. And so what you end up doing is you end up pattern matching against the reference proteome, which comes from the genome, to find out, well, okay, I have a fuzzy picture. What peptide does it look like? At that point, it is no different than the mass spec. The mass spec does the same thing by weighing the peptide. And so it really gives you no new biological insight. It just gives you a painfully slow and limited aspect. <laughs> and so, you know, we wouldn't describe ourselves as a microarray approach because we, we use a very, well, we do immobilize proteins on a substrate, which is like a traditional, one variant of a traditional microarray, we go and analyze each of those molecules by probing them over and over again with a special class of affinity reagents that enable us to pull unique information. We can delve into it more, but give us unique information that then comes up with a shockingly precise identification of what every molecule is. And we are firmly convinced because hundreds of conversations with KOLs and customers, potential customers of our platform, that having a intact protein molecule analysis, of which we are the only company that is doing um, in terms of this new generation of companies, um, that is a critical, critical piece to the winning platform here in the future. Well, so I just, I wanted to just um, make sure that I, I understood your question and then answered it. Um, just to elaborate, some of the key differences between either our approach and a traditional microarray approach um, or the direct sequencing um, approaches? Oh, it was more of an, an analogy in the sense of like, you know, maybe, maybe even RNA-seq is a better uh, term here than the microarray. I was trying to pinpoint the fact of, 
either reading individual peptides, you know, analogously to nucleotides and that being like kind of the main points, if you will, whereas like something like bulk RNA-seq, I would argue perhaps is a bit more better suited to giving you a landscape of the transcriptome. Um, and if that was somewhat analogous to what you're doing here. Yeah, so I think that's right. So the method really has three pieces to it. Um, the first is um, taking the sample and immobilizing each molecule from the sample on its own unique coordinate on this nanopatterned array. And that's, that's already upside down of your standard protein array where you put antibodies down and then flow sample over. In this case, we're gluing the sample down. Um, and so that is closer to an RNA-seq-like approach where you're taking every um, RNA fragment and gluing it down on a colony on the array. Um, and then the second piece of the puzzle is are these affinity reagents that Sujol described. Um, so most people, when they think about affinity reagents and antibodies, aptamers, they think about reagents that are specific to a single protein. And so each one is probing exactly one protein. You know, you think about an ELISA even. You take exactly one measurement and then you throw the plate array away. Um, the, the reagents that we built instead target very short epitopes, um, three to four amino acids long. Um, and so each one is not protein specific. It'll bind to potentially thousands of proteins. Um, but because the proteins are glued down, you can interrogate each individual molecule multiple times, um, hundreds of times, <laughs> and, um, and say, oh, do you have an epitope like this? Do you have an epitope like that? Um, do you have an epitope like this? Um, and, and we think of this like this sort of massive, massively parallel version of guess who, where you're asking these much more general questions. Um, and, uh, and, you know, with the right machine learning framework in the background, um, you're able to take that information that says, oh, I have these six epitopes. Um, let me infer the identity of this particular protein at this particular coordinate. And then once you've identified each individual molecule, your quantification comes for free. You just count up those identifications. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think I get it conceptually. It always, and I can see the uh, analogy to Illumina's NGS approach here. Um, I guess what, not to, not to go into more of the technical aspects just for the sake of time, but it always blows my mind then that leap, as you said, from pinned down unknown, you know, protein molecule to this readout of I have this thing like that's reconstructed by all the epitopes so I, I'm always that transformation of information or you know is, is just kind of mind-blowing to me um, maybe beyond the spokes. That's mm -hmm. something that really is so timely because um, that that transformation as you described it um, is done by a pretty sophisticated machine learning framework mm -hmm. and most measurement tools i would say all but i'm not you know i'm not familiar with every single measurement tool in the world um they the math inside is mostly signal processing um in our case the math inside is is you know machine learning ai um which is taking those signals and making that inference and so um and it requires it it's uh it's a really fun aspect of the platform that it's able to take these noisy signals and combine them together elegantly to identify proteins. So for um, 
to further my understanding on this, you know, how was this all, if you will, trained? I mean, did you guys look at individual molecules where you had a pretty good sense of what was going on and, 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 and use that to then apply it, you know, to the thousands of different kinds of proteins? Um, that's one thing. And then a second question is, um, I suppose the sensitivity to variation or protein modification or anything like that, uh, whether that's kind of included in, uh, the yeah. potential of, of this application. So, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll remind you that we're pre-commercial and still working <laughs> on, but I'll tell you our general strategy for yeah. training. Um, so, so the first piece is that we, you know, we create the affinity reagents ourselves. And so they are initially selected. Um, you know, one of the methods we've described is using page display, uh, where we challenge against you know, they're against linear epitopes that we know exactly what they are. Um, so that's the first step in the process is you create antibodies that recognize a target um, experimentally. And then second, we do a ton of work to characterize what do these antibodies or aptamers actually recognize. So again, challenging them with, you know, tens of millions of different peptides and saying, Hey, what do you recognize? And invariably, it, it you know the thing they were selected against is one of the things they recognize. But you can imagine if I, for instance, had a probe that recognized, um, uh, I don't know, pick your favorite probe, um, uh, L-leucine uh, proline glutamine. Um, it might also recognize isoleucine proline glutamine. Um, and so that's part of what we learn experimentally through this very deep profiling. Um, so most people, when they're looking at their antibodies, they don't go to this level of depth of understanding. Not only do you recognize what we created you to recognize, but you recognize this neighborhood around it. Um, and then from there, uh, we also use you know real proteins, model proteins, and are and validate um, uh, what we have found um, from the peptide level as well. Um, the method itself. So you asked about sensitivity to noise, um, and that's part of why this is a machine learning problem, um, and not just a oh hey I saw this epitope problem. Um, <laughs> is uh, the method once you use that machine learning framework is actually incredibly tolerant to false negatives. Um, you know some. It's a single molecule assay. Just because something can't bind doesn't mean it will all the time. There's a stochastic component to it. Um, uh, and then also um, to false positives, which you know can happen for any number of reasons. And uh, it's really that machine learning layer that allows you that tolerance. Um, so the other, other aspect of it, uh, so you mentioned PTMs. So we can use off-the-shelf free agents. So there's some really great know, antiphosphotyrosine antibodies that are out there in the wild, um, totally great to use. There is also information in binding and lack of binding. So um, we can potentially raise affinity reagents against modified uh, epitopes. We can also say, oh, hey, you know, you usually bind there, but you're not binding this time. That's weird. You must be modified. Um, that's probably something that won't be available at first launch, but um, is, is certainly in the, in the works. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, that unknown or negative space, if you will, there's probably a, a lot of information. Um, 
Yeah, well, th I mean, this sort of technology is mind-blowing to me. I, I, I spent a rotation doing mass spectrometry in a yeast lab um, for um, cell cycle proteins and stuff, and uh, the DNA damage response. When was this? 2010? And I... I, it was it was tough work. I mean, I, I, I have good hands, too, I'd like to think, and a reasonable mind, and it is, it is a laborious process. So this is a major, you know, this is not an incremental advancement on just, I mean, it, it is innovation and, um, you know, a step forward um, in many fronts. Um, so I did have a question about, I guess, since, with, since we have Sujal here, too, um, you know, and, and you guys did mention... Uh, Prague just now that you are pre pre commercial, you know what exactly is the business model here? I mean, it's it seems like you, you know you're creating an instrument. You're going to have reagents. What what are you working towards here? Yeah, so the the primary business model for the company as we get out to market is selling instruments, selling consumables, and selling software. That's a complete package that enables you to take any sample in and get proteum out the other side. Ahead of that instrument launch, there'll be a period of service engagements where we're getting customers excited about the product, where we're generating data, we're publishing papers, and those service offerings will continue um, for the foreseeable future after launch as well, not necessarily as a primary business model, but as a way to give customers the opportunity to do proof of concepts, to give them burst capacity if they need to for a particular project. And so much like Illumina did in the early days, we'll have that, that the, both of those um, as opportunities in our um, in our arsenal of ways to go to market. The, the last thing I'll mention is that the platform today, we've really been just focused on operating in a mode where we're trying to take a complex sample in and identify what all the gene encoded proteins are. But there's another mode of the platform's operation where we take a particular protein of interest and we're able to dive into the heterogeneity of proteoforms um, in a way that is more detailed than anything else out there. That is a really interesting application um, for folks like Genentech we're collaborating with, with respect to the tau protein, and you know the phosphorylation pattern on tau could be indicative of therapeutic response or help stratify patients and what drugs or therapies are appropriate for them. And so these are really interesting applications that we will do for the, you know, we'll, we'll, we're doing already with some collaborators as a service. Um, and we'll continue to do as a service and then move towards figuring out how we productize those offerings in the medium term. Could you help me get a sense of like the throughput, if you will, or, or the, the turnover, um, you know, like how many proteins are we looking at per sample? How long does it take you? And then, I mean, you did just mention, mention right now, Sujal, a secondary application, which I'm yeah. not, not sure exactly how to phrase the same question for, but... Yeah, I mean, let's start with the primary mode of operation, right? Because primarily the customers are going to buy the instrument because they want to take a sample in and get the whole proteome out. Um, you know, when we reach our initial launch, we may launch at sub-home proteome, largely because customers have given us very clear feedback that, you know, half the proteome, most, most of the way towards half, they want to start analyzing data immediately. But if we do launch with less than whole, we will work our way towards comprehensive coverage fairly quickly with just consumables updates as we build the final library of, of, of affinity agents for the platform. The platform is designed to be able to run um, one, four, eight, or 12 samples per day. And 
um, it takes about a, a, about a day to run through the samples, and and we expect the primary mode of operation for customers will probably be running you know four or twelve samples um, it, uh, on the instrument at a time. And is it like for is it a, like a point and click sort of thing for a dummy like me, or is it you know meant for mass spectrometrists who knows you know their way around structural chemistry, if you will, or biochemistry? I'll, I'll take that one. That was actually. <laughs> My, my major goals with the platform um, was I, I personally have found it so frustrating um, uh, as an experienced mass spectrometry user, whenever we bring a collaborator into the lab and try to teach them, and it's often a pretty complicated process. And I feel that as a field, that's really limited proteomics from, um, from just being a widespread part of everyday biological inquiry. So um, the goal is to have it be walk up, drop in plate, press button, go away. Um, so, and the sample preparation, we've tried, really tried to target undergraduate um, level skill sets. Yeah, I mean, that gives a lot of access to people who may be dependent on like a mass and a mass spec lab to do their work and there's a line you know like i mean this is this is such a leap forward for to having a benchtop instrument that gives you this kind of uh resolution and bandwidth um one kind of miscellaneous question if you will where does the company name come from Rob here is better at the name story <laughs> <laughs> Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll have to leave. It initially doesn't make, seems like a very strange choice for a name, um, but it actually came from a lot of work that Sujal and I did um, working with, uh, um, uh, they, with a naming firm. We were originally called Ignite Biosciences and, um, uh, and had to uh, and change our name um, several years ago. And when we were looking at names, the Nautilus really stood out because it was really the, the, the only name that spoke to both what are we trying to do and how are we trying to do it in the same word. Um, so it's very intentional and I'll explain <laughs> why that is. Um, so the Nautilus, um, uh, as I'm sure you're familiar uh, from Jules Verne, but even before Jules Verne was the very first submarine. Um, and it's since gone on to be um, you know, very important other submarines, the very first nuclear submarine, the first submarine to traverse the North Pole. And if you think about what we're trying to do, it's really to enable voyages of discovery, enable people to go further and deeper to places they've never been before in the proteome, and to, um, you know, open up biological discovery science. Um, so that really spoke to us as what our goal as a company is. And then the how we do it, um, you know, we talked about this, this algorithmic component and this mathematical biological cross-section. And of course the Nautilus shell uh, is this really beautiful mixture of a logarithmic project progression in the size of the chambers, bringing that interdisciplinary math bio together, um, which is the heart of our algorithm. Um, so it, it really was actually, even though at first blush it seems completely random, it's actually an incredibly intentional um, choice. I like it. For for me, that hits the uh, the naming sweet spot right there. You know, um, but well done. Um, is there 
anything? Well, I know we're at the end of time here, but just just to quickly throw out there, is there anything that we didn't speak about that you wanted uh, to get out there about the company or the platform? No, it's really, uh, I think this has been a good discussion. I really loved your last comment, Jonathan, about access. Um, we feel like every biologist on the planet is going to want proteomic data, and we want to be able to give any scientist who wants a proteome a proteome. And so that's, uh, for Prague and I, that's what we want the next decade to be about. And we think, you know, it's a super exciting uh, advance. So we're glad to be able to talk to you about it. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Touching Base. I'm Faye Lin. We'll be back next week with more news coverage of the biotech field. Mm-hmm.